Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we continue to discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 9th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. still in 1936 for our fighting time talking about the winners this time yay so it's our usual style we decided the matchups by rotten tomatoes we discussed all of the losers last week we're discussing the winners this week in addition to the actual nominees we added four films for cultural relevance and they were modern times swing time my man godfrey and after the thin man So in this episode, we're going to walk through the winners and say, would we have been mad if they won like we do in a normal episode? And then we'll, you know, figure out what we think maybe should have won this year. Because as usual, the winner went down in the first round. It does happen quite a bit, to be fair. So let us go through our winners and say whether or not we would have been mad if they had won. So first is After the Thin Man. Would you have been mad? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. <laughs> that length of pause. Okay. And then a yes with a question mark. Cool. Up next, the story of Louis Pasteur. Would you have been mad at this one? I think no. I think I'm going to go no, too. How about modern times? Would you have been mad? No. Same here. Okay. Three smart girls. Would you have been mad? I think yes. I'm going to go yes also. Libeled lady. Would you have been mad? Yeah. I guess yes. I don't know how to feel about any of these movies. (laughs) (laughs) A Tale of Two Cities? I I think no. Oh, I'm going to say yes. So this is a mixed. Finally a mix. And then Mr. Deeds goes to town. Would you have been mad? Yes. Yeah, same. Okay. We've got a a fair number of double yeses, which we will talk about first. Then we'll get to our mixed and then our two double no's. Mm -hmm. So do you want to just start with After the Thin Man? Sure. Why not? Tell me So if people have seen The Thin Man, hopefully they have. And if not, go see it immediately because it's such a good movie. This is a similar pattern to that. So we have a guy who is a a well-known private detective and his young wife who's very interested in the fact that he's used to be a private detective and is always whenever there's crime afoot they end up getting involved so in this case her is it her cousin i think so her cousin has some drama going on where her husband is missing and he tends to run off from time to time and because he doesn't really want to be married to her meanwhile there's a guy jimmy stewart plays who's like a friend of the family or something who's in love with her And is like, why can't you just leave this husband? He's no good anyway. And so uh, the husband disappears. She sends our main couple to go figure out where he is. It's pretty easy to find him. He's been holed up in a bar drunk for the last like several days. Mm -hmm. And he's like, uh, his plan is because he knows Jimmy Stewart hates him so much. He's going to blackmail him into giving him some money. And then he will leave town and Jimmy Stewart will be free to pick up the pieces with his wife. 
And so things sort of go wrong. The man leaves the bar and so do a number of supporting characters all at the same time. And outside of her house, after he shows up to get his his luggage and be like, I'm leaving you, he gets shot by parties unknown one yes so there are like seven people who had the means and motive and opportunity to kill this guy and uh it's up to our married couple to figure out who done it so i'm not going to get into the back and forth because like who can even remember it but they go through all of the potential options and eventually they figure out that it was spoiler alert if you're going to watch it jimmy stewart who is so mad about the way that both of them have treated him that he killed the guy and was planning to frame the girl and you're like oh no but he was in love with her or was he uh <laughs> it has like a full agatha christie ending where they get everyone in the room together it usually like, does they follow yeah. that they like to get everyone together for the denouement to be like here's what really happened <laughs> yes and so jimmy stewart a murderer who would have seen it coming and he has a whole scene where he's like actually i was crazy all along and you're like wow jimmy stewart you're really going for it yeah. but it's mostly about like banter and crime solving as all of the thin man movies are Plus Asta, don't forget Plus about Asta. Asta, the dog who is like the best dog on TV. He actually has a running, he has a subplot in this movie. <laughs> in this movie, where his his wife is cheating on him with another. There's another dog. dog that keeps getting into her pen. <laughs> I think she's had a child with him. Yeah. <laughs> so that's after the Thin Man. It's William Powell and Myrna Loy who made 14 movies together and were delightful in every one of them. How many Thin Mans are there? Like seven? Something like that. So this is only my second Thin Man. I've seen The Thin Man. Mm-hmm. Now I've seen After The Thin Man. Mm-hmm. Might end up going in order. Who knows? Maybe. It's fun. Yeah. It's fun. You know, the case has twists and turns. There are, you know, little bits throughout it. You have that subplot with Asta, which is very funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then there's also a whole scene where someone has like thrown a note on a rock through their window and Asta gets a hold of the note and they're trying oh, to get yeah. the note back from Asta. That's fun. A lot of hijinks. You know, I think if you've watched enough mystery things, you you might spot at the beginning that it's obviously Jimmy Stewart. But Well, also, if you're someone watching in the year 2023, the fact that Jimmy Stewart is by far the most famous person in this movie, other than the two leads, yeah. does kind of point it out to you as well. Although, to be fair, it was early in his career. He was less famous at the time. You know, it's a different type of role for Jimmy Stewart. I yeah. thought his performance at the end was interesting. <laughs> I found it enjoyable just because I've never seen him do anything like it. Yeah. Once he's cornered, he's like, yeah, it was me. I did it because I hated you all along because you You'll touched see. me. You'll all see. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's not revolutionary. None of the Thin Man movies are revolutionary, but they are all a good time. William Powell and Myrna Loy are delightful. I think that a married couple is involved, like a real life married couple is involved in writing at least the first one. I don't know how it ended up continuing on, mm-hmm. but their relationship is, is always delightful. The two of them together and the way that they interact, their chemistry is fantastic. And it's a good time. There's not a ton to say, but watch all the Thin Men all right, should we talk about Three Smart Girls? Sure. So Three Smart Girls is about a set of sisters, the titular three girls. Are they smart? We'll see. <laughs> they live in Switzerland with their mother. Their parents are divorced and they come in from a day of sailing and find that their mother is very upset. 
And it turns out that their father, who the mother's still in love with, is set to remarry a, a young woman. And so they decide that they're going to travel to New York City to stop him from marrying this woman who's obviously a gold digger. Like they, they, you know, they spot it right away. And so they arrive in New York City and through a, a series of hijinks, plot and scheme to get their father away from this woman. They have help from the father's like, what's that guy's role? He's his employee, his second in command. He's like his, he seems to be sort of, a VP or something. He's very yeah. concerned with the business affairs right. part of what's going on with the man's company. They decide that the way to get the the woman away from their father is to find like a substitute rich man because she's a gold digger. So if they can find an even richer man, she'll leave the father for this richer man. And so he agrees to help them locate this count who is destitute, but is a, a real count mm-hmm. and that he'll seduce the woman and then, you know, she'll break up with the father. But the count is a drunk and very unreliable. And so on the day when he is supposed to uh, be uh, starting the scheme, he shows up late or yeah, he shows up late and is distracted and they accidentally think it's this other guy who is a very wealthy lord yeah but he's already spotted one of the sisters and is infatuated with her and so he goes along with the scheme so he can continue to hang out with the sister that he's infatuated with (laughs) and you know they're they're playing along there's some back and forth about like oh we gave him money oh you gave him money oh everyone's giving this guy money oh no he didn't show up oh we did show up and in the end they get to a place where I think the the woman has given the father an ultimatum and he is going to marry her on the day. They sort of figure out that the the Lord is in the count and yada, yada, yada. But the younger daughter runs away. So she's decided like, I, I can't be here anymore. I can't go home to mother. I can't see her that upset. So she leaves. And so he's not going to go and get married to this woman until they locate his youngest daughter, who is a child. And the woman shows up and she's like, it's either your daughter or me. Like you either need to leave with me now or I am not marrying you and he's like i'm going to choose my child (laughs) and she's like fine and she has ended up getting an invitation from who she thinks is the count to go sail away and so she does that and in the end you know everyone's happy the two of the daughters have ended up with the the two different men so the Mm -hmm. one who was sort of court the lord was sort of courting ends up with the lord the other older daughter ends up with the vp guy the mother comes back across the sea and the, the parents are reunited and who knows what will happen. <laughs> yeah. And the, the gold digger woman ends up on the boat with the, the drunk count and thinks he might actually be wealthy. And so they might, something might happen there. Yep. And it's, you know, it's farcical. It's very much like the parent trap. I thought it was fun. There's maybe a little bit too much singing from Deanna Durbin, but whatever. Agreed. <laughs> They made all these movies to be vehicles for Deanna Durbin's voice, and I don't particularly like Deanna Durbin's voice. Yeah. And then there are just so many musical numbers for no reason. Yeah. But other than that, it was pretty fun. Yeah, right? The scheme's a good time. The boys that they end up with are sweet. Yes, I really like the the guy that is Lord who gets pulled into this and just goes along with it because he likes the girl. He's very funny. And yeah. then I was afraid... Uh, probably just because of Deanna Durbin, that this would end up being another non-movie like the oh, hundred men and a girl, a hundred men and a girl, and much more happens. I mean, it does still feel kind of like the plot of a sitcom episode, but it's an engaging plot of a sitcom episode. Yeah. and the characters are all good. The dad I find to be both of the parents, 
are kind of weak points for me. The mother is so pathetically in love with this man that seems to be just be kind of a dick <laughs> from the beginning of the movie. And then he, at least he gets an arc because he starts the movie very much like, who are my children? I have children and they're here. And then he ends up like having a real connection with Deanna Durbin, which is nice. But him being pulled around by the tail by this clearly horrible woman is also not particularly, you know, relatable behavior <laughs> but i the, the romances i thought were a strong point with the the girls and their guys that are courting them and the hijinks work i mean everybody loves uh i'll meet you at this place carry a rose and then like he accidentally doesn't have the rose and somebody else does mistaken yeah. identity thing that's great that's a classic trope for a reason it works and it's sort of similar like i i don't think i've seen the original parent trap but with like the Lindsay lohan parent trap you know their butler and then Chessie, the the housekeeper, sort of in on it. I love the butler in this family who is so supportive of the girls. And he's, he's like, great. yeah, what do you guys need? You guys need money to go to this guy? 100%. We got to get rid of this one. Yeah. Well, and same with their maid from their mom's yeah. house, right? Like they decide they need to go break up this marriage. And the maid is like, what do you need? We're going to, to <laughs> Europe. And you're like, okay. Yeah, very supportive. I don't have a ton of notes from this movie either, but my my only other note is so the Lord is picking out rings when on one of the occasions that the girl comes over, and then the uh, the jeweler overhears that like, oh yeah, I need more money, and the jeweler's like, you were going to pretend to buy a seven thousand dollar ring for me, and I was like, how much is a seven thousand dollar so ring in nineteen thirty six worth today? Money. He's extremely wealthy. He's really rich. It really works out for that girl. <laughs> Yeah. Hilarious. <laughs> I was like, $7,000. My yeah. God. Whoa, 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 whoa. What kind of money are we talking about here, guy? You just no, met this girl. The the Count is played by the same actor who plays Carlo in My Man Godfrey. I love that guy. <laughs> and he's crushing it yet again. We found out that his role in My Man Godfrey, he had originally had a career where he mostly played villains, and then he played that comedic role in My Man Godfrey, and it totally turned around his career, and he went on to do a bunch of comedic stuff. He's great at it. He's a great comedic actor. Really enjoyed yeah. him. Mm-hmm. I think it's fun. Yep. If you like The Parent Trap, I think you'd enjoy it. Yeah. All right. Okay. Three, three smart, smart girls. girls. <laughs> that leads us to Libel Lady. Yeah, so Libeled Lady is about a set of four main characters. So we have a man who runs a newspaper and his long-suffering girlfriend who's been trying to get him to marry her for a long time. But every time they're about to get married, he's like, oh, no, newspaper emergency. We have to delay. You know how it is. <laughs> you know how it is. Uh, and then we have a society girl. And at the beginning of the movie, the newspaper accidentally prints a demonstrably false story about her. And her father, who is very wealthy and also litigious, decides that he's going to sue the newspaper for libel. And she demands just an ungodly amount of money that will shut down the newspaper. And so the man who runs the newspaper is like, all right, I know this guy that I don't get along with, but he's very talented at cases just like this. We have to locate him. He will sort this out for us. And so they do this big search. They end up finding out he's in New York right now. And then he goes to see him and it convinces him to come up with a scheme to get the girl to drop the case, basically. So the scheme they end up coming up with is he's going to marry the, the girlfriend of the newspaper man. 
It's going to be a fake marriage, though. Don't worry. <laughs> he mm-hmm. talks her into it. But it's a, they really get married, but they're going to end yeah. up getting divorced. And so so he'll be a married man. And then he's going to go on a boat trip to Europe that the society girl happens to also be on. And the plan is that he will romance her and get her caught in a compromising situation in his room on the boat. They can take a picture of it and print it. And then it will be like a real story showing that she did a bad thing instead of... Right, because the original story was like she had stolen someone's husband. Yes. So if they can show that she is a husband She's stealer. actually a husband stealer, then she'll have trouble in court. Yeah. So they go through this plan. He goes on the boat. He tries to win her over, but he's having a tough time. He's having a lot more luck with her father, who's an avid fisherman, and he pretends to be a great fisherman, and the father loves him, and the girl has no time for him, really. And then she ends up they they have like a kind of a falling out by the end of the boat trip but enough that she's still interested in what his whole deal is and so Mm -hmm. after their boat trip he ends up getting invited to the father's place to go fishing and he's like okay i think if i if i go to the cabin then i will will bring photographers i'll catch her in a compromising position there it'll all still go to plan but unfortunately while he's there he falls in love with her oh man (laughs) oh man (laughs) So then he's like, oh, no, I have to call off this plan. So he won't let them take any pictures. And he, in his mind, he's like, you know what I'll do? I'll just convince her to drop the case. Like, I'll use my own wiles and just mm-hmm. to convince her it's a bad idea. And also, then we can be together. and It'll be great. But then, you know, hijinks ensue because he does have this real wife now that he has to you know do something about unfortunately he's very charming and spencer tracy who is her actual boyfriend is neglecting her so much that she ends up falling in love with william powell so that's its own issue <laughs> and now he has to charming he's he's like dangerously charming every woman he interacts with is like we're getting married now right and he's like oh no i've done it again uh, so he's like conducting his romance on one side spencer tracy's getting more and more frustrated because every time he's wants to take this girl down it somehow falls apart and William Powell's like oh I don't know can't happen today sorry and so it ends up getting to a place where she's very much in love with him Myrna Loy is in love with William Powell and at the party they're having a big party where he's finally going to be seen with her in public she gets told that he actually has a wife and so she proposes marriage to him thinking he'll say no if he actually has a wife he says yes and she's like oh i guess he doesn't the two of them go get married then gene harlow and spencer tracy end up showing up at their hotel room and gene harlow is like you can't marry him he's married to me and he's like you know what actually you had a previous marriage that was never annulled because of yada yada law the divorces in Alcapulco aren't real <laughs> exactly <laughs> and so we were never really married and I can marry Myrna Loy and then she's like so you think but I knew the divorces in Acapulco weren't real and I got a real divorce so we are still you married know. <laughs> and then Spencer Tracy and William Powell get in a fist fight and Myrna Loy convinces Jean Harlow that she actually loves Spencer Tracy. And well, not- seeing Spencer Tracy hurt on the floor really Correct. reinvigorates her. And so she realizes she loves Spencer Tracy, decides she wants to get back with him. And then William Powell and Myrna Loy can be happy and in love together. But it's a lot of hijinks. That's mm-hmm. that's libeled lady. What did you think of it? It's a good time. It's yeah. fun. It's a good screwball comedy. I think, you know, it's a similar thing where you're like, I don't know if this is like, my favorite screwball comedy, but it's pretty good. Yeah. The performances are good. Powell, Loy, Tracy, 
Arlo, come on. Yeah, you can't beat it. It's got a funny little plot, which we want in your screwball comedy. Again, I said this to you the other day. I miss that we don't make movies anymore about people who fake date other people as tricks. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That was going strong for so long, and now we don't do it anymore. There's no more, oh, uh, it's a bet, or oh, you got to trick this person into dating you so I can, you know, win the fair or whatever it could be anything yeah it could be anything (laughs) so i like that as a conceit i always have i always will and of course they fall in love for real because of course they fall in love for real of course they fall in love but it's lovely yeah and there's just funny bits through this i thought the there's the whole thing where so he's convinced the father that he's an angler on the boat right he has all these tall tales and then the father invites him fishing for real but he's never been fishing before in his life Mm mm-mm and so he has to get a bunch of new equipment and be trained. And I thought the whole underhand it's cast. so funny. I'm obsessed with the situation. underhand cast. <laughs> it's hilarious. So he's doing very poorly at casting the line. But then he like incidentally does this, like he flicks it underhand and everyone's like, <gasps> he's, he's a natural. The <laughs> underhand cast. Almost no one can do it. And then when he goes out fishing with the the family, he's nervous. And then he does the underhand cast. And the father's like, (gasps) the underhand cast. Yeah. And Myrna Loy's character, who has been skeptical of him all along, because he just doesn't seem real to her. She's like, I bet he has never even fished in his life. And then he does the underhand cast. And she's like, I was wrong. (laughs) He's a master fisherman. A man who can do the underhand cast. And then he, he, he still isn't catching any fish, but he very accidentally catches, what is it, like a walleye? Yeah. Well, I think it might actually be, they've named it Walleye, and it's one of the, he's like, you caught Walleye, he's the most dangerous trout. trout. It is, but I feel like they are like, that's the one, he always eludes us. Well, regardless, he's caught this particularly large, particularly difficult trout by just like having his line dangling behind him as he's sitting on a rock, and he manages to catch it. And And then there's this hilarious scene where he's like dragged through the water by (laughs) fish trying to reel like, it in you're amazing a true angler what a guy <laughs> and then i also liked how in the resolution before gene harlow reveals that she didn't really get divorced that off screen he's told myrna lloyd like probably the whole story and she's yes, just like but they don't show us no <laughs> she's totally cool with it the next time we see her so she's just like all right i loved that too because he says yes and you're like oh no he's in for some trouble and then the two of them are married and when it all of the you know fighting scene happens she's like totally on board and knows everything and you're like yeah. thank you for taking care of all that drama off screen i didn't well, need yeah. to see you tell her the part. story we just watched yeah <laughs> totally good there so i liked it yeah i think it's really fun and i mean the cast is all hits no misses yeah mm-hmm. you're gonna have a good time with these people it's just really really fun okay that leads us to our last double yes mr deeds goes to town so this is a movie about <laughs> I also love the beginning of the movie, the way this car drove off the cliff. Yes. <laughs> so a very wealthy man drives his car off a cliff. It and dies. <laughs> and he has a fortune of $20 million and he leaves it to what is his nephew, who he doesn't know. And his nephew, Longfellow Deeds, lives in a small town in Vermont. It turns out the guy's lawyers have been, like, you know, skimming money from him. And they're like, well, this local yokel, don't worry. We'll get power of attorney again and we'll we'll just keep on doing what we're doing. But this local yokel is a little bit cannier than they thought. So he comes down to New York City and, you know, it's, it's not just 
willing to listen to these lawyers or spend money as people tell him. He's going to examine the books and really question everything and make decisions. And meanwhile, the newspapers want to know more about him. And so they send this reporter who's a woman, Miss Jean Arthur, to get the scoop on him. And so she feigns that she's a damsel in distress and starts sort of dating him so she can, you know, get the inside. More fake dating, your favorite trope. I do love fake dating. <laughs> and so she's, you know, writing these hilarious pieces in the newspaper about how stupid he is. <laughs> he doesn't care for that. And, uh, you know, sort of over the course of the film, right, he's he's being more critical about how this money is being spent. He is falling in love with Jean Arthur. Uh, there's a second set of there's like a second nephew who the uncle never liked who thinks that like, oh, I should maybe get the money. Really, his wife seems to think that they should get the money. And anyway. Yeah. She pressures him into following up and because the lawyers aren't getting their cut, they end up accusing him of being insane and not able, not capable of managing the fortune in part too, because he's decided after he finds out that Gene Arthur has betrayed him to basically give away his whole fortune. So he sets up this program where he's going to give men 10 acres of land so that they can farm it. And it's going to take away like $18 million of his fortune. And the lawyers are like, no, that's our money. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, they accuse him of being insane. There's this whole hearing where all these people talk about how, yeah, he's crazy. And Gene Arthur's like, no, he's not crazy. He's the best. Why won't anyone listen to me? (laughs) And then in the end, it's, you know, the, the judge comes around. Gene Arthur says that she loves him and that he's not willing to defend himself until Gene Arthur says that she loves him. And then he brightens back up and he defends himself and he wins his court case that he's not insane. And it's not insane to give away all your money to the poor. And you're like, okay, that's kind of the movie. Yeah. It was okay. (laughs) I think I probably struggled most with Mr. Deeds himself. Mm -hmm. Um, That character is a hard one for me to get my arms around. They set him up as you said, as like the the local yokel and you expect him to be not necessarily dumb, but like probably naive. Right. And then that goes out the window pretty quickly. He's pretty canny and, and like cynical about his business dealings very early on, which is interesting. And he's supposed to be like a good guy. Everyone in his hometown loves him, but he also is weirdly violent. Again, we're back into the punching people a lot for no reason movies. And he's also like he he gets into situations where he doesn't know any better. And so then bad things happen, like he gets drunk and he's never been drunk before. And so you're like, okay, like hijinks ensue. But then he there's a scene where he's confronted by this poor guy who is like, you have all this money. You came in all this money and you're not doing anything with it. You're wasting your life and your money and you're getting drunk and you're feeding donuts to horses and stuff. And like, you don't even care about any of us. So this is another one where the presence of the great depression is entering into the mm-hmm. storyline. Right. And he at first is like, you know, you're trying to get one over on me, you jerk. <laughs> and then he finally does end up coming around and like doing his scheme to give farms to the people. But I just felt like, Maybe part of it is he never really seemed that nice to me. (laughs) So Mm. I was not as on his side as I might have been through the whole thing, which was an issue because I feel like the only path through this movie is to be like, oh, I love this guy. And then these crazy things happen to him. And so that was a that was a hurdle for me. Parts of it I did think were good. Obviously, Frank Capra is a great director. It's very capably made. And 
some of the hijinks are very fun. They still work. I just didn't feel like it came together to me in a way that made it like a greater than the sum of its parts situation. And then also the courtroom stuff, I just didn't buy at all. Like I, I understand them trying to take the fortune away and saying he's like not capable to have the fortune, but I never really understood why they would be able to lock him up in an insane asylum for anything that he had done. I'm like, your argument is that he's somehow criminally insane. Like what has he done? They could charge him for punching the people, but that never comes up in the trial. <laughs> Again, maybe punching was an assault in the thirties. That's and, my only explanation. Yeah, exactly. And like, I get what they're trying to do because the point is in this capitalist society, the surest sign that you're insane is giving money away, right? Like they're trying, that's the point that should be being made here, but it just didn't land for me as well as I think it could have. What did you think of it? So I, I mean, I thought it was interesting as, as we've talked about, as you know, I love Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I think yes, I like you it. Do more than you do and so it was interesting i had not seen this one before like the relationship between those two films and so mr smith goes to washington was initially supposed to be a direct sequel to mr deeds goes to town it was supposed to be like mr deeds goes to washington but then gary Mm -hmm. cooper wasn't available so they replaced him with jimmy stewart and obviously reworked the script to be like a fully original story but there's definitely still some connecting tissue between it and we've talked about this off podcast but like the whole sequence where Jimmy Stewart goes around Washington punching the reporters in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington feels weird in that movie. Doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And you're like, oh, but if it was a sequel, you'd be like, he's punching people again. Oh, Mr. Back Deeds. at it. Deeds <laughs> loves to punch people. <laughs> and so, yeah, there are things I like about this movie. I mean, I always love Jean Arthur. Yep. She's great. I love the little, the, the guy who's like his newspaper handler Cobb throughout this movie. Mm-hmm. Love that character. He was great. But I think you're right. Mr. Smith goes to Washington, I think really works for me based on Jimmy Stewart's performance and just sort of his vibe. Yeah. And Gary Cooper does not have a Jimmy Stewart vibe. No, he does not. And so, yeah, there's whiplash with his character where, yes, you meet him initially and he seems like he's sort of this dreamy head in the clouds, like, I'm just going to play my tuba and I don't really know what's going on. But at his core, he's a really, what's the word I'm looking for? Shrewd. He's this really shrewd guy at his core. And so it makes it seem like all the dreamy head in the clouds, the way he like reverses so quickly is an Was he pretending? Yeah. Yeah. Not like his real personality. Whereas I think when you watch Jimmy Stewart, Jefferson Smith is just a guy who wants to be out in nature and helping kids connect to nature. And, you know, he really needs Gene Arthur's help in that movie to understand how Washington works. Whereas like Mr. Deeds would show up and be like, I know what's going on. Yeah. You can't trick me. Yeah. And so, yeah, the very quick back and forth, like when he's having the meeting with the opera people and he's like, well, how are we losing money? What are we doing? And then he hears the, the, fire truck by and he goes like oh a fire truck and he runs up and goes looks out the window and you're like this is like is there something is this person yeah like i thought maybe there is something wrong with him Mm -hmm. i don't know so yeah i think you know as a central performance is not just as it's just not as effective and so i think overall the the movie doesn't work like there's a real there's a real darkness to longfellow deeds which is me not present in jefferson smith and it, it hurts the movie but Again, like Capra's direction, there are, you know, like little Capra moments of comedy that I enjoyed still. 
So yeah, I there there are things that I like about this movie. I think it's interesting. I think it's particularly interesting in its relationship to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Yes. Apparently this film mainstreamed the term doodle. Yeah, there's a scene where he's like, back in my hometown, we have this word doodle for just drawing random nonsense. And I was like, you have a random, you have a word doodle? No one else knows this word? <laughs> this is new to everyone? Wow. <laughs> Way to go, guys. We all say doodle now. Mr. Deeds goes to town. A less successful Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Correct. I, at the end, I was like, this is, at the end of the court scene, when everyone jumps in to defend him, it was giving me end of uh, It's a Wonderful Life vibes. And so Mm -hmm. I was like, this is Mr. Smith goes to Washington meets It's a Wonderful Life, but much less good than either of those movies. Missing Jimmy Stewart. That's the problem. Jimmy Stewart is the thread that uh, connects them for sure. Yeah. When you get, when you, when you pair a Capra with a Stewart. You're going to get a hit. Okay, that's Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Unless you have anything else to say about it. Nope. I think that brings us to our only mixed. Yeah. A tale of two cities. We could maybe treat this like Romeo and Juliet, but since we never read this story, I don't know. Uh, I would like to, though, because it's like based on a long book and lots of stuff happens. So I do want it to be a shorter description. But unbeknownst to us, yeah, the two cities are Paris and London. (laughs) Our two cities. Those are two cities. So basically, what's going on is the political situation in Paris is there's some unrest, unsurprisingly. And so we have this guy who's been wrongfully imprisoned in the Bastille for many years, and he ends up getting out. And his daughter, who thought that he was dead this whole time, finds out that he's alive and she goes to meet him and he is greatly changed from the experience, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And so the two of them get out and she, how do I make this short? <laughs> Her two love interests, basically, on the trip from France to England, she meets a guy who is a nephew of an aristocrat in France. But he is leaving because he doesn't agree with the aristocratic ways and he actually is a supporter of the people. So he's going to England because he doesn't get along with his uncle. And so on the boat, the supporters of the uncle end up framing him for a crime because they don't like him. And so in England, he is going to trial and he gets this lawyer who is like a kind of a very good lawyer, cynical guy, <laughs> not doesn't have much going for him in his life, but he is really a lawyer. Bit and so of an alcohol problem. Bit of an He's alcohol okay. problem. And so he takes the case and ends up getting the guy off and it's because he's very smart and he like finds the witness and realizes that it's a fake story and manages to make it all come out in trial so we have our main girl who now is friends with the guy who was on trial because they were friendly on the boat and they really like each other but she also has now met the lawyer and likes him too because he seems very smart and interesting and so she becomes friends with the lawyer. She enters into a romance with the rich guy and they end up getting married. And the lawyer is always in love with her, but he likes her too much to leave or anything. So he just stays her friend and he's the godfather basically to their kid who loves him eventually. And the, everything's going fine for this family. And then in Paris, the revolution happens baby and all of a sudden aristocrats everywhere are getting killed for stuff and 
even people who are innocent, supposedly, are getting killed for things. And there's someone back there who our rich guy owes a lot to. And the people who are killing the aristocrats force him to write a letter to our rich guy and say, you need to come back to Paris to help me. I need you to testify on my behalf. It's his like former tutor who taught him to be a man. Who taught him to be good. Uh, And so he's like, oh, my God, I have to go back to France to testify on his behalf. But actually, it was a trick all along. They just wanted a way to reel in any aristocrat they could get their hands on to kill him. So everybody ends up going back over to France now. And he's on trial. And the father who was in the Bastille for a long time speaks on his behalf at the trial. You think maybe they're going to get him off because, like, he gives such an impassioned speech. But then... Another French woman gives a different speech and riles everybody up again. And they're like, all right, death sentence for him. I think it's worth noting, right, that it's not just every aristocrat. They have a particular grudge against this family. It's not that he's an aristocrat. It's that he's an Evremont. An Evremont. Yeah, because that family is both the family that put our initial guy into the Bastille and is responsible for the death of this French woman's sister. (laughs) Some relative of hers. Um, so yes, they specifically want to kill the Ebramons. And so the, the trial's not successful. He's imprisoned. He's going to be executed with all these other people. And they're trying everything they can to figure a way out of it. But eventually the lawyer best friend realizes they're not going to be able to get this guy off. But he comes up with this scheme where he could get into the prison and basically take the place of the the guy who was imprisoned and sent him out and he will get executed. And then the woman that he loves can have her husband and they can escape England. So he pulls it off. He drugs the guy, they get him out of the prison. He takes his place and then ends up getting executed at the end. And the husband makes it out of England. No, out to England, a tale of two cities. What did you think? Best of times. It was the worst. The worst of times. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, it, see, it also is bookended. Literally, the only thing I knew about this was it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And then it's the quote, far, which is at the end, it thing. is a far, far better thing. But I do now do. than I've ever done before. And I didn't know what either of them meant. <laughs> those are the two famous quotes, but the, the sort of middle content that maybe connects the two of those things. Knew nothing about it. Question mark. Question mark. So on the plus side. Very interested to know what the Tale of Two Cities was about. Yeah. Our high school was a little weird. We didn't read any Dickens. Zero Dickens. So I, I can't complain about having some knowledge of this classic piece of literature. Um, that being said, like I said in our, our first episode where we were talking about why we maybe liked one of the movies better than the other, I feel like some of like the, where the book wants our sympathies to be, it's a little strange. Yeah. So a, I like that the guy is like, I'm, I can't be an aristocrat anymore. It's unethical, but he still goes to England and becomes a rich banker. And you're like, I don't know about that. Well, it's hard for rich people to become unrich. You're not really like, you know, you're not really pulling a Mr. Deeds and trying to like, you know, give, give away, away all your fortune. Help people. Yeah. <laughs> you could have tried to buy the people in France bread or something with all of your money that you made as Even a Even the people in England, you know? Yeah. <laughs> people. 
doesn't seem to have that thought at all. He's like, I've, if I'm no longer an aristocrat, I'm now a good guy. I've solved the problem. Right. No, I'm not sure about that, sir, but okay. And then, yeah, the storyline with the, the lawyer, I think I struggle with it because, like, you know, he's not a super young man. He meets this young woman who is beautiful, but, like, she doesn't seem to have anything particular going for her. And he's just like, she's the only one for me. I can't meet another lady. I'll never meet another lady. I've never met another lady. If I can't have this lady, I'm just going to be sad. And you're like, well, he was sad already. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I think I'm just not invested in his relationship with her. And so at the end, when he's like, I'm going to sacrifice myself, you're like, well, okay. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like any of the rich people have thought critically about, you know, what the real problem with being rich is. And in the end, I'm like, eh, if he wants to, sure. <laughs> it's your life, buddy. Yeah. And then the, the, the right, the sim along those lines, you know, by the end of the story, they really are vilifying the poor people risen up and like potentially, yes, they are overzealous with their approach to the French revolution. But as the, the woman who turns out to be the real villain points out, like these rich people have effectively killed hundreds of thousands of poor people. Sure. So, you know, it's not going to be perfect. Your revolution's not going to be perfect. Right. Yeah. To me, the main flaw of this, and I assume it is from the book, I don't actually know, obviously, yeah. we didn't is, read the book. <laughs> is the turn at the end where all of a sudden the, you know, revolution has happened and then they're like, the revolution happened and then things got a little out of hand and all of a sudden the movie is like all of the poor people are evil. They're killing all these rich people that were just innocent rich people. <laughs> who never did anything bad in their whole lives and i think the main issue is the main representative of the poor people we have is this woman who is on this like quest to kill every evermond and not just the guy like the aristocrat guy but she's like i'll kill his daughter too and you're like they've really vilified the shit out of this woman and so you're not seeing what i felt like earlier on in the movie was you know some actual images of like how horrible the aristocracy was i really like the stuff that they do with the horrible uncle who's getting like he has the advisor who's the teacher to the nephew and he the advisor keeps trying to say like maybe we should not just be horrible to the poor people all the time <laughs> the uncle's like nah we the don't like nah and there's this like fantastic moment where they're talking about how one of the people who's supposed to be paying him taxes isn't paying them and they're like well what happened to him and they're like he died what did he die of hunger and he's like hunger is just something that they are all like giving into just like gout with our class <laughs> like <laughs> you're like this is a hilarious perfect skewering of the aristocracy which i thought was good and then yeah the turn at the end i was like i don't the story is taking a ineffective turn it's kind of like my man godfrey right where it started and i was like loving the satire it's great and then at the end i was like you did not land <laughs> what you were starting out with you did you really like both sides of this in yeah, a way why are we like... both sidesing this i don't understand it I'm, I'm not sure um for me the it sounds like the the relationship the relationship Coleman worked, better. worked a lot better for me i i agree with you about the husband i was never really that invested in the rich man husband who became a banker and i was like okay like 
<laughs> who cares about you? But I just really liked Ronald Coleman. I think I was invested in him and I found him really convincing. I was on his side and maybe like I didn't see what was so great about the girl, but I believed that he did, you know, and I liked the like his relationship with their kid that was very sweet when she like didn't want to go to bed until she said goodnight to him because he's her favorite like that was lovely and so then because I was invested in him more than I was invested in specifically the relationship I was emotionally affected when he sacrificed himself at the end but the the like broader message the social commentary of it I thought started strong and ended pretty weak I did like when the nurse fought that lady though it was awesome (laughs) That nurse was so cool. <laughs> I was like, she did that. Way to go, lady. She killed her. She did. That was crazy. Oh, I would want to say the storming of the Bastille scene. There were so many extras. That was awesome. Yeah, that was very That was cool. like a very epic scene. I like on the Wikipedia page for this movie, when they talk about the cast, they say that Coleman had long wanted to play Sidney Carton on film. He was even willing to shave off his mustache. That's a big deal. (laughs) If he was really attached to that mustache, I mean, wow. Yeah. He didn't have a mustache in the movie. (laughs) But there is some funny, what I think of as being characteristic of Dickens, even though I've read no Dickens writing in it. I really like how he's breaking the whole piece apart at the beginning because you could just tell by the people's names that they're bad. He's like, Cly and Barsat, Barsat and Cly. They're obviously villains. <laughs> and you're like, this is very Dickens to have the people have names that match their personalities for some yeah. reason. Yeah. Oh, here, this is the actual quote. Hunger is an indulgence with these people, quite like gout is with us. I mean, he was the worst. He was the worst. Don't get me wrong. That guy was the worst. Yep. Okay. Dickens. Dickens. Glad to know what A Tale of Two Cities is about. One of the most famous works of literature in the English canon. I will give the movie that. Thanks for educating me. Uh Okay. So that brings us to our two double no's. The story of Louis Pasteur and modern times. Which order do you want to go on? That order, I guess. I don't really care. Sure. Okay. The story of Louis Pasteur is a story of Louis Pasteur. He is a, you know, early on a proponent of germ theory, which is the theory that germs cause disease. Before they were like, your body just decides it's sick. Sometimes people just get sick, man. It's not for us to know why. So washing our hands, that sounds stupid. Mm -hmm. And so basically they're like, Louis Pester, stop telling people to wash their hands. You're getting doctors killed. The movie starts off with like a a guy shooting a doctor who he blames for having killed his wife because he didn't clean his instruments or wash his hands. And so the Academy blames Louis Pester for this doctor's death. Uh, And so Louis Pasteur has to leave Paris and he moves into the countryside. And then there's this big anthrax outbreak among the sheep throughout all of France. And it's a bad time to have an anthrax outbreak because they have to pay off some debts from the the Franco-Prussian War. And without the farmers being able to make any money, they're never going to pay off their debt. And Pasteur has figured out a vaccine for anthrax. He basically is giving the sheep, you know, a dead disease or whatever inoculating them and so the sheep all in this one region of france are not getting sick 
and the government comes down and are like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, Pasteur is here, that quack. And then he's like, I'm inoculating the sheep. And the government's like, I bet the soil down there is just fine. So we'll just send all of the sheep down there. And Pasteur is like, no, the soil actually here is really bad. <laughs> it's full of anthrax. <laughs> they're only surviving because we inoculated the sheep. And so they let him run an experiment where he has inoculated like 10 sheep. And then they have 10 sheep that they're exposing to the blood serum of sheep that have died of anthrax. And surprise, surprise, Louis Pasteur's sheep live. And so they're like, I guess we'll inoculate the other sheep. And so in the next chapter of his life, Louis Pasteur decides he's going to work on a vaccine for hydrophobia. That's right. Rabies, baby. Rabies is a real problem, obviously. And once again, the government's like, I don't know. Sounds fake. But (laughs) he works on it and he figures out that if he gives people like an increasing dose of the like increasingly fresh dose of the disease, they can effectively inoculate people. So they start off with a like 14 day old rabies and then give them a 13 day old rabies and then, you know, 12 day old rabies. And over time, the body builds an immunity. And so a young boy comes who's been bitten. They try a human trial on him after it's worked on some of their dogs sort of under the table because he's like if this doesn't work i could get guillotine but let's do it and it does work and then he's able to save some russian peasants who also have rabies and meanwhile his daughter is about to give birth and the doctor who's supposed to deliver the baby is sick and his nemesis dr charbonnet is the only doctor around and he tells Dr. Charbonnet that he will sign a note saying that his ideas don't work if Dr. Charbonnet will just fucking wash his hands and boil his instruments before delivering this baby. And Charbonnet's like, fine. So he, he does it. I love that whole scene. Great. But after after it's revealed that the rabies vaccine does work, he like tears up the letter and he's like, okay, Louis Pester, seems like you're right about all this stuff. And then... That's it. That's the story. It right? sure is. That's the story of Louis Pasteur. What you think? Um, I liked it for the most part. It's very like keeps it breezy. This movie, I think, is less than ninety minutes long, <laughs> so they're really just getting you the details you need to know. Paul Muni is good as ever. Louis Pasteur, interesting person. I appreciated the dramatization of how hilariously the entire medical academy of france like thought his ideas were so ridiculous every time every time he has a new thought they're like how can you imagine it's just like ridiculous back and forth with them i think his family life i liked i was you know i liked his wife and daughter i liked the his this guy who really he's a scientist and he believes in his stuff. And then he ends up becoming like working for him and also marrying the daughter. He was fun. And it's nice to learn about the, the process of how it all went down. And then there were little like cameos from other famous scientists, which is always fun. Like Dr. Lister shows up and you're like, Oh shit, Lister. (laughs) But it was like, if for a biopic painless, which is always a good thing and interesting guy to learn about. Well done. I thought. What'd you think? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty straightforward biopic. It's quick. It's breezy. I mean, the whole history of the medical apparatus. 
Yeah, the medical establishment not believing in germ theory is true. It's mm-hmm. insane, but it's true. Mm-hmm. I loved when Dr. Charbonnet was like, if I wash my hands before surgery, people are going to think I'm like a witch doctor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was hilarious. I'm not doing that. But that's really what happened. Like, people did not believe in it. That's the history of so much medicine. I think, you know, we went on a deep dive on scurvy a few years ago, and it Mm -hmm. took the army forever to just be like, yeah, let's bring some citrus fruits. At first, they were like, probably people need more meat. Yeah. So we just feed them more meat. More meat. (laughs) That'll work. Works every time. But, you know, Paul's great, as always. More, More gold for Paul. And again, like, I love the scene where he finally got that Charbonnet guy to, like, wash his hands and boil his his instruments. Because, yeah, when he comes in, similar to the guy at the beginning, like, he, Paul catches him dropping his instruments on the floor and just picking them up and being like, all right, I'm ready to go. And he's like, no, oh we God, have to so boil wild. your instruments. And so then he makes the guy wash his hands, and then the guy immediately touches his bag, and Paul's like, no, you have to wash your hands again oh my god and then he's like hold your hands up do not touch anything except for the patient (laughs) (laughs) oh my god poor louis Chester. oh my god you know that's an interesting moment too because there's there's so much in the film about how he's neglecting his health and he's probably neglecting his family being so invested in his work yeah and this is a moment where he really is like, no, my daughter is the most important thing in the world. I will ruin my reputation. I will not yeah. work on this other project to ensure that she survives childbirth. Mm-hmm. And you're like, that's good. That's good. That's good. Good boy. So, yeah. Yeah. Wash your hands, man. Yeah, seriously. Germs are real, everybody. If we've learned anything. <laughs> I watched the trailer for this movie before I watched it, and they had pull quotes from reviews. And so my favorite one was from Elizabeth Wilson with Screenland Magazine. This is, like, of the time. It will deeply affect all women. I'm proud that I cried. I'm proud that I cried? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What does that even mean? I think, you know, she was like, wow, this man really strove for women not to die in childbirth. Really sure, yeah, that's very deeply good. Deeply affected me as a woman. Why are you proud that you cried? <laughs> it's an achievement. I'm happy to say I still have emotions and can feel things, well, everyone. you know, she's not ashamed that she cried. She's proud. Okay, yeah, I guess maybe that's what she means. I'm not yeah. ashamed, I'm proud. Okay. Proud that I cried at this important piece. Yeah, it's an important piece. Washing your hands. Paul Muni pieces are. The man's got something to say with all of his movies. Getting your shots. Get your shots, everybody. Rabies is scary. Rabies is scary. Rabies is still scary. It is. It's a crazy disease, man. It really is. No thank you to rabies. Mm Mm-mm. Anything else? I also liked the still image that they include in this movie that it's like a card that says, while men fought and killed one another, yes, I wrote that was fighting microbes, the real enemy of all mankind. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, uh, what an interesting window into a different time in medicine. What Every time I watch something, a period thing about medicine, it's remarkable to me how like quickly things have changed in that field mm-hmm. you watch stuff from a hundred years ago and it's like it basically medicine basically didn't exist <laughs> like 
the stuff that we have figured out in the last several decades is pretty remarkable. Well, like science didn't exist. They sort of had a sense of how to run an experiment. But Mm -hmm. if you think through what they thought, how the body worked, you're like, there's no basis for this. This is not, you didn't experiment to figure out that this is what you should do. You've just decided that washing your hands is witchcraft. Yeah. Well, and there's also the fact that like the experimentation that led to us figuring out how humans work a lot of it was pretty dirty, rough stuff, right? Like, we learned a lot of things from all of the horrible stuff that we did to lots of patients a long time ago. So there is, it's been a rough ride to get here. Um, Right, but I I feel like germ theory is not that, because the experiment is, try washing your hands before, you know, see what happens. What would it hurt if if you did wash your hands? You'd just be less dirty? Um, but they didn't want to, they didn't want to proclaim themselves as people who believed in these imaginary things you can't even see. All right. <laughs> Let's start here, baby. Okay. Tell me about Modern Times, our last film. Modern Times. I had never seen a Charlie Chaplin movie before. I don't same. think you had either. Same, same, same. So this was exciting. And we got to see his most famous character, the Tramp. So mm-hmm. that's also pretty fun. The last outing of the tramp. The last outing of the tramp. So this is a movie about, hey, modern times, right? So we've got a guy who is working in a factory and they are just, you know, for lack of a better term, slave drivers at the factory. And they keep them working. They're never allowed to stop. Everything gets out of hand. And there's some satire about corporate culture and capitalism where someone's coming in to sell the head of this factory a machine that will make it so that your employees don't have to take lunch breaks because it will feed them while they continue to work and obviously all of this is being told in slapsticky charlie chaplin comedy bits but basically he's having a bad time working at the factory and he ends up having like a nervous breakdown because he's so overstressed and overworked at the factory and he freaks out and he grabs an oil can and he goes around and he sprays everybody at the factory with the oil can and he just like loses it and they end up taking him away to an institution and then he gets out of the institution and supposedly he's recovered now from his nervous breakdown and unfortunately the minute he's out of the institution he accidentally gets swept up in a bunch of like unionists who are marching in the streets and the cops come to break up the march and think he's the leader and they put him in jail he's having a rough go of it (laughs) so at the same time we meet this young girl who's like a street urchin who has her mother seems to be dead and her father's around something like that and she has these little sisters that she's taking care of and so she's on the street trying to steal food and figure out how to survive with all of her sisters and then he has some you know more hijinks happen while he's in prison he figures out Well, he accidentally does cocaine, which is rough. And then while he is on the cocaine, he ends up stopping a prison break. And so the people that run the prison decide that they like him. And so then he's there for a while and he works out like, you know, it's not so bad to be in prison because I've got my routine and they feed me and I get along with everyone. And like, this is much better than having to work for a living because that was horrible. And so then he ends up getting pardoned because he broke up the prison break. And so they're like, you're out. 
you're free. And he's like, I don't want to be free. And they're like, don't <laughs> worry. I'll give you a letter that says, yeah, this is a great guy. Whatever job he applies for, you should totally give it to him. So he goes back on the streets to try to get a job. And of course, everywhere he goes, he's not great at it because he's the tramp. And so everything he does just goes wrong hilariously. Meanwhile, he has met this girl. He ends up taking the rap for a thing, like a crime that she commits. She steals something and runs away. And he's like, no, she didn't do it. I did it because he wants to go back to prison. He's trying to go back to prison anyway. And so the two of them bond over this. And so now they run into each other again when he gets out of prison. And now they're like, we're going to be friends. And they start to envision like the life they could have together if they were rich. And so the two of them are bonded. He ends up going back to prison. There's a lot of prison. She Not finds sure. she finds a house that's like falling apart and horrible. But when he gets out, she's like, this is the house we're going to live in together. And he is like, OK, I'm going to go get a job and we'll have this happy life together. And then does he go? He goes back to the same factory. He gets a job because mm-hmm. the the something has happened with the economy that they're like, the factory's reopening and all these jobs are available And so he goes with the guy who's trying to reopen the factory and, of course, fucks all of it up again (laughs) because that's what he does. And what's the last beat? The factory goes on strike again, right? Uh As soon as they start, they're like, okay, we're back on strike and now you have to go on strike. Oh, 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 okay. The girl gets a job as a dancer. Oh, yes. Okay. So there's a whole thing. She gets a job as a dancer. He's in prison. He gets out of prison. She vouches for him. She's like, he needs a job. He can come work here. He'll be a waiter. And then there's the whole hijinky scene where he's not very good at being a waiter. But they're like, well, maybe you can be a singer. And if you're a singer, then we'll have a job for you. So then they send him out there. He sings this whole song in Italian. It's pretty great. And he turns out to be a natural performer, surprisingly. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, great, you're hired. It's going to be wonderful. But then... um. The, the cops show up the to cops arrest show her. Up to arrest her because she was an orphan who got away from the cops when they tried to bring her into custody, and so they show up to arrest her. He like tries to keep her from getting arrested, so he blocks their way and has her run away, and then he must get arrested again. No, no, no. They they flee together, and then the end of the movie is them walking down the street, like oh, to right, 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 figure right. out what they're doing next. The problem is there's some plot, but it's mostly just sequences I of do. hijinks tied together. So it's yeah. tough to remember the things that happened. But yes, that's Modern Times. Mm-hmm. What did you think of it? I mean, it was interesting. I think it was interesting to also watch this after now having seen like a Marx Brothers movie and mm-hmm. like try to get a little bit more sense of what comedy was in the, the sure. 30s. And then this was also interesting because it was still mostly a silent There was some talking, but it was mostly like pre-recorded material. Like someone would come in and turn on a, you know, phonograph or something and something would play. It wasn't necessarily dialogue that was happening in the story. And so I thought that was interesting as well to see a silent film sort of this late in time. Mm -hmm. And again, this is like the last outing of this tramp character that he had done for so long. So I don't know if he moved more into talkies after this as a silent film was like really dying but yeah it feels transitional because there are some bits of dialogue but mostly not 
Yeah, I thought, I mean, some of the satire is really good. I think particularly at the beginning when he's first in the factory. I love when they first show, like, the the boss who's running the factory and he's doing a jigsaw puzzle as the rest of the workers are just, like, working so hard. He's like, oh, my jigsaw. And he just has, like, video feeds of everyone in the factory and occasionally he'll look up and be like, hey, work harder. (laughs) Very big brother. Very, like, modern surveillance state where he has cameras everywhere. Yeah, I love that. He'll be like, go faster, more steam. And then, yeah, I think the, the bit with... Like the bit with the the machine that feeds them lunch is so corporate looking for efficiencies. They're yes. Like, oh yes, let's find efficiencies. Let's not give people time to eat lunch, or you know, we can get rid of employees. That'll be fine. Any any place where we can find efficiencies. Mm-hmm. So I thought that whole that whole part was like really successful. And also, that's the part obviously where you see the the very famous scene of him like running his body in going the, cogs. the cogs. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, the imagery of that is great. And then, you know, the rest of the movie, I think, is the satire gets, like, less pointed as it goes along, and it just gets Mm -hmm. sort of more silly and hijinky. But it's pretty entertaining throughout. I also liked the bit where... I mean, the bit where he's in prison is is great, too. And he accidentally does the cocaine and stops the the prison break. He twirls so much when he's on cocaine. He does. When he tramps on cocaine. <laughs> he just twirls around. Twirls and twirls. And I like the bit where he was the, the store, the night uh, guard, if only because it was, like, fun to watch him rollerblade <laughs> or roller skate. Oh, my God. That scene where he is on roller skates and he blindfolds himself and there's a giant yeah. hole in the floor and he keeps roller skating up to it and away and up to it and away. It I mean, incredible. that is classic. What a wonderful bit. It was incredible. There were this that were like, oh, shit, this is like such a classic bit. Yeah. So I thought it was good. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? Similar to that. Yeah. Loved the satire at the beginning. It sort of goes away as you go through, but still, I did find it to be entertaining because all of the bits carry you through. Uh, he's obviously incredible. I get why people are into this whole Charlie Chaplin thing. <laughs> he's very watchable. Um, the lots of the bits were instantly memorable, things that you had seen before, or things that I that were referenced in stuff later. I I feel like his early assembly line stuff, where things are getting out of hand, sort of echoes the. I love Lucy eating mm-hmm. the chocolates assembly line, right? Yeah. And then there's a scene when they're imagining the life, this like perfect suburban life they're going to have together. And he trips over this ottoman, and it was it reminded me so much of the intro to the Dick Van Dyke show where he mm-hmm. trips over the ottoman. Mm-hmm. So it just feels like a lot of stuff that it, you can feel echo through comedy time. And I thought it was delightful. It's another one that was really short. None of it drags. You're like it, watching. 87 minutes of movie or something and you're like great (laughs) get in get out see the hilarious bits i thought it was a lot more successful for me than the marx brothers thing which was some no i agree with that it was more it was less chaotic yes it feels a lot more focused even though obviously the things that are happening are chaotic the the what's driving you through stayed the same all the way through and i feel like you understood why these things were happening it didn't start with like a totally absurd premise it started with a pretty normal premise that then absurd things happened and it built on itself and i mean it even is finding a way to like say some satirical things about the world which is impressive in a movie like this and all the bits were great he was great happy to see the tramp very entertaining i thought we just have to get a buster keaton then have you seen a buster keaton before i've never seen buster keaton me neither we need, there's other things too though like we should see some Abbott and Costello and like there's all kinds of classic comedy things that I've never seen before but definitely Buster Keaton because if we like slapstick Buster Keaton baby yeah and I thought Paulette Goddard as the lady was good too mm-hmm. and they had like a very sweet 
relationship. It was kind of interesting because it felt risky. All the things were how I was like, is she a child and he's an adult? What are we doing here? But it never became creepy or anything. They just both felt like these naive little people that were like, we're best friends. Yeah. <laughs> and you're and like, I don't okay. know how old the tramp is supposed to be, you know, in any probably of his films. I, I did not realize that Charlie Chaplin was so teeny tiny. That He's so little. Watching this film. He's very little. <laughs> I think I Googled it. He's like five foot three or five foot four or something. He's a little yeah. man. Yeah. So I don't know how, how old the tramp is supposed to be, but no, their relationship was sweet. And yeah, like the the bit the the bit where he's working in the restaurant and he can't get the duck to that man because oh like everyone's still dancing. That was so good, the waiter scene. I mean, all of the big set piece things were just like excellent. Mm-hmm. He's an entertaining fellow. Yeah. I liked it. Yeah. All right. Modern times. So, that brings us to the end. I think we've talked about all the films. We have two double no's, but what do you think should have won this year? Um, Honestly, my favorite might have been Modern Times. <laughs> I think it, it probably has had the most cultural impact. And I liked the story of Louis Pester, but it also was like pretty biopicy, short yeah. and tolerable. But I, I really, really liked Modern Times. Yeah, I think the story of Louis Pester feels very Oscar-y. You know, part of my my enjoyment of it is no doubt my my ever deepening love for Paul. Newman. Oh yeah, we love Paul. But I think there's something there'd be something beautiful too about this year giving it to still a silent picture, giving it to the maybe they didn't know at the time that this was going to be the last outing of you know like this iconic yeah. film character. But if they did right, like you'd want to sort of if you could reward that at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of and they didn't even nominate it yeah yeah i don't i you know i wonder if two people in 1936 if silent films were passe so they were like we're not mm-hmm. gonna give it to this passe silent picture i mean yeah. it's and they're like another now. chaplain as the tramp we get oh. it <laughs> but yeah i think again like we said this is one of two that have made it through to the the afi list it's made it through time there's no blackface in this one which is yay like, no blackface so we're going to say what's on the FI list, right? And not a flat face. But in terms of cultural relevance, I think it's up there. And again, just the idea that you could reward this last outing of, of The Tramp, this like late stage mm-hmm. silent film in this year, I think would be would have been pretty cool if they could have gotten it together. <laughs> if only. <laughs> so, um, did the Oscars get it wrong? Yeah, I think so. Especially since our winner didn't even make it into the second round. Though, again, I will echo. I liked Great Zigfield much more than I expected to like Great Zigfield. So I was happy about that. Yes. All right. So, yeah, the Oscars got it wrong. We're giving it to Modern Times this year. Mm-hmm. Oh, we have our question. We can only have five nominees. We have seven <laughs> on our list. But maybe what would your five nominees be? Would they? Would you have carried anything over from the first set? Would you lose some? So definitely Modern Times and Story of Louis Pester. Mm-hmm. Gotta have those babies. I might have brought uh, Great Ziegfeld into my final five. And then... I did like A Tale of Two Cities. Maybe. I don't 
No. It's tough because I, you, so many of the comedy ones are enjoyable, but then I'm like, I don't know if I want to nominate this instead of this thing that's more interesting to me, you know? Sure. Like, I loved Live Old Lady. It's such a fun time. And I'm like, do I give it to that? Or I found Dodsworth really interesting. Maybe I give it to Dodsworth, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's tough to make that distinction. What are your five? I agree. I'm keeping Louis Pester. I'm keeping Modern Times. I think I am bringing Dodsworth forward. I might keep Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. That fifth one's Maybe tough. a comedy. Another comedy. I don't know. Maybe Live Old Lady. Let's do it. Let's do Live <laughs> Old Lady. Say? I mean, it's a quality movie, Live Old Lady. Yeah. There's no problems with it. It's just, you know, pretty light. It is light. That's not a problem. But it does it does emphasize my quest to bring back movies where people lie to people about the reason that they're dating them. So we got to honor them when we got them. <laughs> You've got two if you're bringing in Mr. Deeds. Yeah. Perfection. Perfection. Okay. Um, time for our walk down the lane. I think so. Two. Jake Gyllenhaal Corner. Let's do it. Let's do it. He's not around this year, unsurprisingly. But could he have been nominated for an Oscar this year? Is there a place for him? Would he take one of William Powell's 85 roles? (laughs) Do you think William Powell was upset that he was like in three very nominated films this year and he did not win Best Picture? I assume he was nominated for something. I think he was probably nominated for My Man Godfrey. Yeah. And then Paul just swooped in and was like. (laughs) (laughs) And William Powell's like, I'm putting in the hours, Muni. I'm in all these movies. (laughs) And you're like, one and done, baby. (laughs) But I mean, the story of Louis Pester one is such a like an Oscar baby kind of thing. That's exactly the role that would win now. The like biopic lead. I love William Powell. I'm not replacing William Powell in anything. I don't feel the need to replace William Powell. But what could Jake Gyllenhaal do? Uh, This is another tough one where, like, most of my favorite roles, I probably wouldn't replace the actor who played them. And so then you're left with roles that you don't like so much. I mean, here's my thought. So we said Gary Cooper doesn't work in Mr. Deeds. No, he doesn't. Maybe we give Jake a try. Just try it Maybe out. We can balance the the vibes, you know. I think that's an interesting Maybe idea. Smooth out the the hard peaks and valleys. It's hard to say what that movie would be like because I think what we're learning is these movies are highly dependent on the inherent qualities of the lead, right? So you know yeah. exactly what you're going to get from a Jimmy Stewart movie. I don't know what we would get from a Jake Gyllenhaal <laughs> version of Mr. Deeds. I don't know either. I mean, Jake can be very sweet. But yeah. he can also be too intense. Yeah. So like, he could be anything. He's got the whole spectrum going. But doing? I would like to see what he would do. Are we doing like a Lou Blue Mister Deeds? Like what's <laughs> the I, yeah the the aw shucks part of the character is entirely fake, and we see that. Yeah. yeah. That would be interesting. That would certainly be interesting. But I mean, I don't know. I don't want to replace William Powell in anything. I don't want to replace. Um, he can't do Chaplin. 
he can't do Chaplin. I'm not taking out Paul Muni. We could get just a younger version of him and put him in Romeo and Juliet so that it was <laughs> less horrible. Well, I just I still don't know if a younger Romeo would help against an older an Juliet. Older Juliet. It's an interesting dynamic as well of this woman well past marrying age in this time period being chased around by a 16-year-old boy. <laughs> and everything's still going exactly the same. Yeah. Like, that was That would be wild. Uh, he's not replacing anyone in Libeled Lady. Mm-mm. I don't want to replace Ronald Coleman in A Tale of Two Cities. You don't want no, to. No, although I've learned, I've learned something else about Ronald Coleman. What? Apparently, there is Irish slang for a mustache called a Ronnie, which is in reference to him having a mustache. So I think him shaving his mustache—that's a big actually deal. A huge deal. I think he was like heavily associated with oh my gosh wow all right so wow that doesn't really help us in jake gyllenhaal corner i just i just learned that good to know yeah Yeah. (laughs) and then you're not going to replace walter houston and dodsworth i just think think i'm not saying it would be Better. I think it's just like let's try someone else and Mr. Dudes goes to town and see what happens. I would be very interested to see what happens if you see what Jake does with that material. Why the hell not? Oh, he makes so many choices. Okay, let's go with it. So let's get to our conclusions. Do you see yourself coming back to any of these movies? Hmm. (laughs) Once again, one day I'll say. I've watched I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang yeah. a million times. I've popped on The Life of Emile Zola half a dozen times. Let's just throw in a story of Louis Pasteur. Yeah, you know? Just a, get a I gotta Paul get my here. Muni fix. Let's get a different Paul in here for once. So yeah. maybe on that one. I mean, I could come back to like any of these comedies, I think. Yeah. Again, it doesn't happen, but if they were on, yeah, I'd sit and watch them for a while. I have seen Libeled Lady more than once, and I think it's rewatchable. After the Thin Man could happen again. Mm-hmm. I've seen that more than once, too. Um, I think Modern Times is rewatchable. Yep. So, yeah, basically just comedies, I think, this yeah. year. And and Muni. Comedies and Muni. Sure. Okay. Have we learned anything? This year they went spectacle. with sort of epic spectacle, yeah. Spectacle. Spectacle. Said, wow, look at, look at that. That's real big. It's so big. I got costumes. And did you see the costumes by Adrian? Oh my god, those costumes by Adrian. They were so sparkly. They were good. The costumes by Adrian, to be fair, were good. Well, one of the musical numbers is just women coming out in more and more elaborate costumes. They were so elaborate. (laughs) So, you know. Um, And I think you're right, right? Again, it really reminiscent of Around the World in 80 Days, where, yeah, maybe people at home didn't get to see this kind of spectacle all the time. So going to the theater was a chance to just view some spectacle. And everyone was like, wow. Yeah. Look at that. I can't see a Broadway show. I live across the country. You know? Yeah. You're like, okay. Cool. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. So spectacle wins. Let's look at our patterns. Do we have any angry white guys? We certainly have guys punching people a lot. The guy punching people. I mean, I think, again, there's like this sinister undercurrent to Mr. Deeds. It makes you nervous. I do feel like he's our angriest white guy. <laughs> like, what's going on with that guy? I'm real nervous. 
And he's kind of like, I didn't, we didn't mention this either, but you know, at the beginning, he's like, he's never dated. He's never married. He wants to rescue a woman and, you know, have a damsel in distress. There's like incel vibes. It's troubling. <laughs> there as well. Yep. Yeah. What's yeah. going on with that man? I don't know. He's, he's weird. <laughs> he's weird and he's still giant Gary Cooper. Uh-huh. Too big. He's unnatural in that role. He needs to be an Old West sheriff. That's the only thing I believe him as. Well, you liked him in Friendly Persuasion. That's true. He was really good in Friendly Persuasion. But yeah, there was like this gravitas to him that really worked. That that role is really good for him. There's something about yeah. this. Like there's no naivete to Gary Cooper. That's not no. going to happen. <laughs> no. He's not He's not a real all shucks type. No. If Jimmy that's what Stewart, you're looking for, peak all shucks. Peak all shucks. But if you're looking for that, you're not going to get it from Gary Cooper. No. Okay. Biopics. Two. Two. Louis Pasteur and the Great Ziegfeld. We've long said we don't care for biopics, but we've put we put over two Paul Muni biopics. So just true. You know, keeping notes. It's true. It's true. I mean, I, I don't think that we hate them just on principle. They just have, there are flaws in the general storytelling of a biopic that tend mm-hmm. to negatively affect yes. these movies. It's not that they can't be done well. It's that it happens very no. rarely. And we have liked other biopics. Yes. Like we want, liked Ed Wood. Mm-hmm. See, that is a good way to do a biopic. Real weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Original ideas. So we've got out of the 10 nominees, four original ideas. Mm -hmm. The Great Ziegfeld, Libeled Lady, San Francisco, and the story of Louis Pasteur. And two of those original ideas are based on real people. So they're not that original, are they? You know. Everything else is a novel or a story. Or a play. Or a play. Like Romeo and Juliet. I mean, that's the one play. Yep. Okay. Shall we get back to our ranking the best best pictures list? Let's do it. We currently have 26 best best pictures. Mm -hmm. Where is it going to go? Where is it going to go? For me, I liked it more than Kramer versus Kramer. (laughs) I don't know where you're going. Kramer versus Kramer really fell apart at the end. All of the end hmm. was an issue for me. <laughs> I was going to stick it between Titanic and A Man for All Seasons. Okay. I definitely liked it more than A Man for All Seasons, but we very much differ on A Man for All Seasons, yeah. I think. Yeah. Okay. Let's think about Tom Jones. Let's th- think about Tom Jones. What a movie. <laughs> That's such a wild movie. <laughs> Do we like... The Great Ziegfeld more than we like Tom Jones. Compare those two movies in your that mind. That is very, very difficult. They are really different experiences. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one is so weird and one is like very conventional. Yeah. Uh, do you have an instinct either way? I mean... I know we just watched The Great Ziegfeld, but if you had to rewatch one right now, which would you choose? Can I have it on in the background or am I like, <laughs> no phones? You have to watch <laughs> rewatching the whole thing. You have to watch it. 
Maybe Ziegfeld. I really like wow. William Powell. Okay. Wow. Wow. Okay. I don't know. Uh, do you uh, how do, do you want to put it above Kramer versus Kramer? I don't think we should because you definitely don't like it more than Kramer versus Kramer. I think I will be happy with whichever side of Tom Jones you want to put it on. I'm actually now realizing I might like Tom Jones more than Kramer versus Kramer. Maybe we Do we need to point. do a whole revisiting <laughs> of the list? I think Kramer versus Kramer has not grown in my estimation since we talked about Watched it. it. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Tom Jones is interesting. Tom Jones is much more interesting than Kramer versus Kramer. If we bump Kramer versus Kramer down and stick the great Ziegfeld now in between Tom Jones and Midnight Cowboy. Sure. That all works for me. I don't know. How did Kramer versus Kramer end up this high? What were we doing? <laughs> I don't know. We were feeling pretty charitable at the time about Kramer versus Kramer. That whole court scene, though, is so bad. It's really bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that makes... The Great Ziegfeld, our new number 17. Hold on. Do you like Kramer versus Kramer more than A Man for All Seasons? A Man for All Seasons has a much better court scene. <laughs> You're not wrong. I probably feel similarly about the two of them because I didn't enjoy A Man for All Seasons except for the court scene. And then I did enjoy Kramer versus Kramer at the beginning, but not at all once the court scene happened. Can we move Kramer versus Kramer after A Man for All Seasons? If you want, I probably wouldn't. But if you like A Man for All Seasons more than Kramer versus Kramer, who wow. am I to judge you? What a shocking turn of events. <laughs> this is what happens. You think you're safe on the list and all of a sudden you're getting reevaluated. Okay, that makes Great Ziegfeld number 17. And mm-hmm. we move Kramer versus Kramer to 20. I like that Tom Jones is moving up the list. In the world? Yeah. <laughs> Good for Tom Jones. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting movie. It is such an interesting movie. At least they did something interesting. All right. So, what are we... We gotta... That's it? We yeah. did the whole thing? That's the whole thing. What okay. are we talking about next time? Next time... We're somehow back in the 60s again? I don't really know what's going on. (laughs) Random number generator. We're talking about the 33rd Academy Awards or the films of 1960. The nominees that year were The Alamo, The Apartment, Elmer Gantry, Sons and Lovers, and The Sundowners. Have you seen any of these? I have seen The Apartment, but that is all. Have you? None. All right. Starting fresh. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Looking forward to it. In the meantime, if you have comments, questions, concerns, please reach out to us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod, and our website is OscarsWrongPod.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe, and new episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts.